Amen. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. What a great reminder. Praise the Lord. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I want you to imagine that you are a Hebrew who has been exiled by Babylon into Babylon from your home in Jerusalem. Some old friends that you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, not uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not their Hebrew names, but names given them by Babylon, were actually deported earlier than you and exiled out of Jerusalem. So they know the lay of the land. You get to talk to them briefly. Your home has been destroyed. Many of your loved ones have been slaughtered. And you have set up a new home for yourself, not knowing what's going to happen as you reside in Babylon under the rule of a tyrant king named Nebuchadnezzar. What would your prayers be like? This would be like if, I don't know, Russia and North Korea came in and took the west of America and exiled them and the east of America and exiled them and America was no more. It's kind of what happened back in 722 with the exile of the northern tribes from uh, the north of Israel into Assyria and the southern tribes into Babylon in 586 B.C. What would your prayers be like? What would your communication with other believers be like? As you are God's chosen people under Yahweh's covenant-keeping name, but not in your promised land. Well, the entirety of the book of Daniel is written by Daniel from the perspective of someone who has been exiled. He is in exile as he's writing these things, trying to figure out how am I supposed to interact with Babylon? How am I supposed to interact with God, knowing that God promised that we would have our own land? We've been exiled from our land. He said that that was going to happen if we disobeyed. We disobeyed. We didn't repent. We're in Babylon. But he also promised that we'd go back out of Babylon to Israel in 70 years. And we're coming to the tail end of those 70 years, and we're waiting. What's going to happen? God, are you still in control? A little survey of the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel chapter 1? You have Daniel and his three friends. They are told to eat the food that Nebuchadnezzar wants them to eat. They say no. Everybody thinks you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. They end up surviving by eating God's food that he specifically asked them to eat. And they are stronger and more handsome and more rugged than all of the other people in Babylon. Chapter 2, you remember, is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. That's that famous dream where he sees the statue and the head is made of gold. And when Daniel interprets it, which we looked at during our spring semester looking at prayers, when Daniel interprets it, he says, O king, these are the things that God has given to you to understand what's going to happen in later days. Not only later after you, but the latter days, the last days. So it's both right after you, Babylon, right after you, Nebuchadnezzar, but then also in the end times. The head of gold was Babylon. The chest and the arms of silver, silver is Medo-Persia. The belly and the thighs are Greece. They're made out of bronze, and then the legs of iron are Rome, and then the feet that are iron and clay mixed together is really Rome 2.0, which we're going to get to this morning in Revelation. Daniel chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's statue. He has a dream about a statue, and he decides, let's build that dream. Let's build it out of gold. Let's make everybody bow down. That's the fire furnace chapter. Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's other dream. He just keeps having dreams. 
He has another dream about a tree. And what's going to happen with that tree? He asked Daniel. He knows Daniel's going to be able to interpret it. And Daniel says, what's going to happen is that tree is you. It's going to be cut down. Your kingdom's going to be given to another person. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay. You remember the end of that chapter turns into an animal. He says, uh, look at Babylon that I've made. He glories himself. He turns into an animal, grows bird feathers and cow feet and all these crazy things. Daniel chapter 5 is then a fast forwarding after chapter 4, about two decades into the future after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And it's at that uh, feast of Belshazzar. You remember the feast where the writing's on the wall? Belshazzar comes in. He is king of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. There's the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall is you've been weighed. You've been found wanting. Somebody's going to come in and take over your kingdom this very night. Who is that person? That's Darius the Mede. The Medo-Persian Empire begins as Darius takes over. Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel thrown into the lion's den under the rulership of Darius the Mede. So all throughout these chapters, you have this interplay between the people of God and these oppressive government ruling operations that just don't seem to be going the way that Israel wants them to go, the way that God's chosen people would think that they would go. After Daniel survives the lion's den and the people that wanted him dead that made that rule are thrown in, by the way, with all of their family members, their wives, their kids, and they're eaten by the lions. Daniel chapter 7 occurs. Now, Daniel chapter 7, time-wise, occurs before Daniel chapter 5. So there's a little bit of a flashback. You can see it in verse 1 if you're there. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So remember, Daniel chapter 5, two decades after Belshazzar is having, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, Belshazzar is having the feast. There's the right on the wall. Darius is going to come in, destroy Babylon, take over for the Medes and the Persians. Follow suit. So Belshazzar, we're doing a flashback. Daniel sees a dream, verse 1, and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he writes the dream down and he relates the summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. That's literally the symbol for Babylon. You remember pictures of the symbol of that uh, kind of griffin-looking animal where you have a lion with wings, with eagle's wings. That's Babylon. The wings were plucked. It was lifted from the ground. It was turned into a man, made to stand on two feet like a man, humbled. A human mind was given to it, and the kingdom is gone. Another beast, verse 5, a second one, resembling a bear. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. It was raised up on one side. Three ribs were in its mouth, three ribs corresponding to three provinces that they took over and claimed as their own. And it said, arise, devour much meat, which is what we are going to do this afternoon at our barbecue. <laughs> Verse 6, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, this is Greece, which had on its back four wings, that refers to the swiftness of Alexander the Great and how he came in so quickly to take over. Dominion was given to it. It looked like this crazy swift bird, but it also had four heads. It was a leopard that had swiftness of four wings, but also had four heads, corresponding to these four different generals who divided the kingdom after Alexander the Great's death. Dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, 
dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. So iron corresponding to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. It corresponds with Rome. And we have this progression. We have the, the lion is Babylon. The bear is Medo-Persia. The leopard is Greece. We have this progression. Then it's going to be Rome. But this is Rome in a different way. The teeth look like Roman teeth, if you will. It's extremely strong. It devours and crushes, but it tramples down the remainder with its feet, and it's different from all of the beasts that were before. It's very different, and it has ten horns. While I was contemplating, what are these horns? Behold, another one, a little one, came up from among the ten horns. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. This horn is representative of the Antichrist. It's going to come. He's going to bring ten kings, those ten other horns. He's going to bring them together. He's going to rule over this one world empire. Three are going to try to fight against him. He's going to subdue those three. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire and flames. Wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, myriad upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat and the books were open. We're going to see books next week. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking. Again, that little horn is the Antichrist. I kept looking until that beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As to the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he, he came upon the ancient, uh, up to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Antichrist is going to uh, rise up. He's going to rule over the one world kingdom, but it will be destroyed. The Ancient of Days, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is going to come back. This is clearly verses 13 through 14. Second coming language. He's going to come back. He's going to destroy the Antichrist. He's going to set up a kingdom that will never go away. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by, this is an angel, to ask the exact meaning of this. So he told me, the great beasts, which are the four in number, or four kings will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's a great summary of the dreams. But I desired to know the exact meaning of that fourth beast. He's different than the other beasts. He's exceedingly dreadful. He has teeth of iron, claws of bronze, devours and crushes and tramples down the remainder with its feet. I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head. The other horn which came up. Who's that little horn? Why are there ten horns? Who were the three that fell? Who's that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates? I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was passed in favor of all the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So he said to me, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. It will be different than all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. This hasn't happened yet. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and 
Another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones. He'll subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Most High. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given to his hand for time, times, and half a time. We've seen that language in Revelation over and over and over again. That's that three and a half year period. This little horn is going to be given authority for time, times, and half a time for three and a half years. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, to the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the dominions will serve and obey him. So there's always this interplay between the kingdom of the Antichrist, which looks powerful and looks like it will last forever, but it's only three and a half years, and then the kingdom of God that will reign forever and ever. Daniel chapter 8, there's another dream, another vision, a ram and a goat, Medo-Persia and Greece. Alexander will die after his kingdom is established and will be split into four territories. And this very well-known historical figure named Antiochus Epiphanes is going to rise up and own one of those territories. And he's going to war against Israel. He's going to commit the abomination of desolation, which in that time was him going into the temple and sacrificing a pig on the altar of God. You know that story at the end. Judas Maccabeus, who shows up and destroys Antiochus Epiphanes and destroys the war, uh, enables, God enables them to win. And that's, that's the celebration of Hanukkah during that beautiful uh, feast of lights when God gave the Israelites victory. Even in Daniel chapter 8, if you go to chapter 8, verse 23, you'll see this figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is kind of a near-far representation of the Antichrist. He is a real figure. He's a historical figure. For Daniel, he's a figure in the future. For us, he's a figure in the past. He's a real person, but he is a good figure of what the Antichrist will be later. Antiochus Epiphanes looks like what the Antichrist will be later. So there's a lot of interplay between these two people. And in verse 23, as we're talking about this shaggy goat representing Greece and these horns that show up and this one that has a lot of power, Verse 23 says, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, there will be this king that will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And then verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. So he's going to be mighty, but not by his own power, which is a strange riddle in Daniel chapter 8. What does that mean? He's powerful, but not by his own power. What does that mean? He's going to destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. Again, there's a, a bit of Antiochus Epiphanes in that, but that's pointing to the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9, to finish out our little survey here. Daniel chapter 9, you remember Daniel saying, hey, God, it's been 70 years, and you told us that this was going to be the extent of when we were going to be in exile. When are we going back home? And you remember in Daniel 9, verse 24, when the angel Gabriel shows up, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to steal, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We've talked about this time and time again at Palm Sunday. When Cyrus makes the decree, 444, 446 BC, it's going to move all the way. You can set the timer, you can click the stopwatch, and we can see the years that it's going to take to get us to Messiah, the Prince, coming. Then after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood 
even the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And that man, the Antichrist, verse 27, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Remember, one week is a period of seven years. So this is the end times timeline. The next thing that's going to happen as we approach this period of tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, this period of seven years, the next thing that's going to happen is Antichrist is going to make a covenant with these Jewish people. He's going to make a covenant for a week, for seven years. But in the middle, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice, a stop to grain offering, and on the wings of abominations, one, will, one who comes will make desolate, even complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So halfway through that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to go back on his covenant. Three and a half years into that seven-year period, he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. Part two, Antiochus Epiphanes did it one time. Antichrist is going to do it a second time. And then he's going to go to war with Israel. So God is saying in Daniel 9, I'm not done with my people. Not now, not in the future. I have a purpose in the future for you in that seven-year period of tribulation. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees a pre-incarnate Christ, and Gabriel talks to him about the war that's going on in the spiritual realm uh, with Persia and how Michael's going to jump in and help. And we've talked about Daniel chapter 11 many times as we've gone through Revelation because it's a picture of what's going to happen with the Antichrist. Verses 36 through 45 all deal with the Antichrist of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a detailed account of what's going to take place in the intertestamental period. Once Malachi closes, right before Matthew opens, Matthew uh, or Daniel 11 is a huge, uh, beautifully articulated um, description of what's going to happen historically. Literally to the T that some history books uh, follow exactly what Daniel wrote because it is uh, just absolutely identical to what took place in history. Then, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince, this is the angel who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. So, if you go back to verse 45, the Antichrist, verse 45 of chapter 11, the Antichrist will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help. Verses 36 all the way through verse 45 are all about how the Antichrist is going to rule and reign in those latter days. And at that time, verse 1 of chapter 12, Michael's going to show up. And we know that because in Revelation chapter 12, it told us that Michael's going to fight against Satan to protect the people of God. I say all of this and go through this incredibly long introduction to say when we get to Revelation, if you know Daniel, you'll know time, time, times and a half a time. You'll know that language. You'll know a seven-year period because of Daniel chapter 9. You'll know this beast coming out of the sea that has ten horns. You'll know the language here. You wouldn't be surprised if you are a reader of John's revelation of Jesus Christ in the early church. When he gives it to you, you totally know what he's talking about. When we just parachute into Revelation and we read chapter 13, we think, what does this refer to? What is the point of this? But if you go back to Daniel and you remember Daniel was written in a time during exile. And Daniel's saying, God, what are you doing? Are you working? Are, are your people done for? Is this it? And God says, I'm going to tell you the whole story. Let me tell you what's going to happen at the very end of human history. I'll tell you everything that's going to happen. And your people are still going to be there. I'm not going to go back on my word. You are my covenant people. 
so that when we get to Revelation chapter 13, which is what we're going to study this morning, if you know Daniel, you're going to read Revelation 13 and go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. So let's do that together. Revelation chapter 13. Let's turn there. With these verses reverberating in our minds, Revelation 13, verse 1. Some of your Bibles might have what I'm about to read as verse 1, might have it at the end of chapter 12. It can go either way. It depends on what translation you have. It depends on how the people would have interpreted this phrase, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, but it doesn't change the meaning of what's happening in the text. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads are blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like that of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after this beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? There was given him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. Time, times, half a time, three and a half years, was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Notice those words that we saw. Lion, leopard, bear, ten horns, beast coming from the sea. If you know Daniel, Revelation just opens up. It's like changing a movie from black and white to technicolor. It's like looking at a 2D movie and then make it 3D so you can see all the dimensions. If you know Daniel, you'll know Revelation 13. And that's why, though that was a very long introduction, it makes Revelation 13 very, very easy to interpret and understand. So halfway during our time, Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the rest of this sermon. Father, please guide us now as we dive into a portion of Scripture that is so hotly debated, so contested. So many people have such a strange fascination with who is the Antichrist? Who will he be? What's his ethnicity? When is he going to be born? We can so easily jump into conspiracy theories about this, and that's not why Revelation was written, and it's not even unclear what's happening. So Holy Spirit, give us clarity. Open our eyes that we behold wonderful things, not only from Revelation, but from Daniel that illuminates Revelation. And may all of this be done to the praise of the glory of your grace. Because though Antichrist will be powerful, and though his kingdom will be worldwide and powerful, it has an end. He has an end. Yours does not. And you do not. So, Father, be glorified as we understand the Antichrist in his correct proportion this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verses 1 through 6 of Revelation 13 deal with the Antichrist. We're going to meet him. We're going to get to know him. We're going to talk about him and his worldly system over the next 
uh, several months together. Antichrist was first introduced, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 7, the two witnesses have finished their testimony. The beast that comes up out of the abyss, that's the Antichrist, will make war with them and will overcome them and kill them. So the very first time that we met this man, it was back in chapter 11, verse 7. What he's trying to do is set up a kingdom, and this is really what the devil is trying to do through him, set up a kingdom that will be so powerful and so great, it can rival Jesus' kingdom that he promised to bring, the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. The devil wants to thwart God's plans, set up a kingdom that will make it such that God can't establish his kingdom and thus make God a liar and Satan to be the winner. Now, Satan is powerful, yes, and the Antichrist is powerful, yes. But I believe the best way to understand these verses are to look at what the Antichrist cannot be. Let's not give him more power than the text of Scripture gives him. So three aspects of who the Antichrist cannot be. Number one, the Antichrist is not independent. He's not independent. Instead, he's energized by the dragon. He's energized by the devil. Ultimately, he's going to be indwelt by the devil. He cannot work on his own power. Verse 1, again, it's a continuation of John's vision of the woman clothed with the sun. The dragon's still there. The dragon is the devil. The woman is Israel. You remember there's this uh, fleeing to the wilderness, and then he stands uh, by the seashore. There's the, the curse over those who dwell on the land and the sea, and Satan dwells right on the seashore between both. That's why there's still a sea. And this beast comes up out of the sea. Now, some people have a, an issue with this saying sea, whereas chapter 11 said the beast came out of the abyss. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, number one, because it's the same person. Number two, because that's exactly what Daniel said, right? Daniel chapter 7, Daniel said there's a beast that came up out of the sea. John's using that language because he's seen pretty much the same vision that Daniel saw. This beast is going to come up out of the sea. The sea is the source of evil and chaos in the Old Testament. Isaiah 57 says the wicked are like the raging sea. In Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says that there is no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't mean there's not going to be water in the new heavens and the earth. That means there's no source of chaos and evil. The Old Testament pictures satanic activity as a raging sea. Job 26, Psalm 74, Psalm 89, Isaiah 27. Paul equates the abyss, which we've discussed, as that holding cell for all of the demons that had disobeyed God. Paul equates the abyss with the sea in Romans chapter 10, verse 7, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 30, verse 13. And then if you go over, just really quickly, to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, we are told explicitly, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss then go to destruction. So it's, the sea is the abyss. So this beast is the Antichrist coming up out of the abyss. That means he's empowered by the abyss itself. All of the demons, all the demonic activity, Satan himself empowers this man. He's dependent on the devil. He can't do things on his own. He had ten horns. Remember, a horn symbolizes power and strength in attacking and defending. And those ten horns we saw in Daniel chapter 7. There's ten kings, ten kingdoms, ten groups of people that control other people that are going to come together to be ruled by this one little horn in a one-world empire, in a one-world system. There's going to be people that fight against them, three countries that stand against him. They're not going to 
ultimately survive in the very, very end, but they make it most of the way through. Daniel sees these beasts, or this beast coming up in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. He saw four of them. Here in Revelation 13, John sees one, but with aspects of all of those beasts. He has seven heads. So seven heads are a reference to seven nations that existed that all warred against Israel. Seven heads would represent Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then this uh, Antichrist kingdom that's going to come in the end. Seven different heads that are gathered together, all empowering uh, for the purpose of the Antichrist kingdom to wage war against Israel. They all have in common making war against Israel. Think about Egypt, think about Assyria, think about Babylon. They all did not want Israel to survive, and so too the Antichrist and his kingdom will not be Babylon. He'll be like Babylon. He won't be Rome. He'll be like Rome. He has all of these aspects of these different nations involved in what he is trying to accomplish. On his heads were blasphemous names. He has these diadems that rule and reign. They're the, the word for the, the king, the ruler, the victor. Verse 2, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Now you know what that represents. The leopard was Alexander the Great. His empire growing so fast, he had the four wings, and then he had the four heads because the four generals took the territories when Alexander the Great died. So we have a leopard, that's Greece. We have the bear. His feet were like those of a bear. That was Medo-Persia. And we have his mouth being like the mouth of a lion. That was Babylon. Very interesting to note, when Daniel was writing, he saw them in reverse order, right? He's in Babylon. Then he sees a bear because Medo-Persia is coming next. Then he sees a leopard because Greece is coming after that. John sees it backwards. Why? Because he's looking back in the past. He sees Alexander the Great was the most recent for him uh, before Rome. And then he sees Medo-Persia. And then he sees Babylon. So this absolutely makes sense. So he has all of these three animals in reverse order, just like Daniel saw them, but just that reverse order, so that you and I are made to understand the Antichrist kingdom will be Babylon-like, Medo-Persia-like, Greece-like. Roman-like. It's really a revived Roman Empire. But, middle of verse 2, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. This man does not have it on his own. This beast, the Antichrist and the kingdom that he stands for, doesn't have it on his own. The dragon gives him power. We always see Satan working in this way in the world and in the Bible. For Satan to attack Job, he moves through the Sabines and the Chaldeans. For Satan to fool King Ahab, he uses the mouth of a false prophet. For Satan to get Jesus to the cross, he uses Judas. He's always doing this. And here he's going to empower and ultimately indwell the Antichrist to bring about his goal of setting up a rival kingdom against God. So, Remember back in Daniel chapter 8, verse 24, it said that he will be mighty. This little horn will be mighty, but not with his own might. And that's a riddle. Daniel probably would have thought, what does that mean? I don't understand it. You and I know. He's going to be powerful. Antichrist will be powerful, but not because of him. Because he's empowered by somebody who's powerful, the devil himself. He's not independent. Instead, he's empowered by someone else. Number two, verses three and four. The Antichrist is not original. He imitates the victory of the lamb. He's not original. He imitates the victory of the lamb. 
Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. As if it had been. That's a comparative word in Greek. It's like if I said that my car is as fast as a cheetah. My car isn't a cheetah. It's as fast as one. So I'm, I'm comparing it to something about a cheetah. So too, this phrase, his head looks as if it has been slain, does not give us enough to understand exactly what's happening here. A lot of people want to conjecture that uh, Antichrist actually dies and he's raised from the dead. Possibly. Uh, some people say he fakes his death and somehow the devil fakes it in a, an amazing way. Some people think that he dies and he actually isn't raised from the dead, but there's this strange hologram that makes it look like he's alive. We don't have enough. We just have a comparative word here. It's just telling us that somehow, some way, it's going to look as if the Antichrist dies, but then comes back to life. Whether or not that actually happens is not necessary for us to know. What is necessary for us to know is why the devil's doing it this way. The devil's doing it this way because we have, in Revelation 4 and 5, a lamb standing though he has been slain. We have a savior who was killed. No ifs, ands, or buts about that. He did die, and he was raised from the dead. That's the most miraculous thing, and so what does the devil do? He says, let's go to what's the most miraculous thing that's ever happened and try and duplicate that. We'll imitate that. This fatal wound is healed, and it does exactly what the devil wants. The whole earth is amazed and follows after the beast. They love him. They worship him. He's no longer just a political leader. They're actually bowing down and adoring him in worship. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 will help us with our understanding of what's happening in this time period. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1, We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had talked about the rapture. And so here he's saying, you are quickly shaken, verse 2, from your composure. You're disturbed because you think the rapture's already taken place. And I'm here to tell you it hasn't. That's what Paul's going to say here in chapter 2. Uh, that's why he uses that phrase, the gathering together to him. The rapture hasn't happened yet, Paul's saying. Don't worry, I told you about the rapture. It hasn't happened yet. Why? How do we know that? In verse, uh, end of verse 2, I don't want you to be disturbed or distressed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You remember the day of the Lord is that Daniel's 70th week. The day of the Lord is that tribulation period. The day of the Lord starts when the Antichrist makes that treaty with Israel that begins those seven years. This entire period of tribulation and actually on into the millennial kingdom is the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And since the rapture occurs right before the day of the Lord begins, Paul's logic is clear here. He says, wait, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. The Thessalonian believers were thinking, well, the day of the Lord's come, and Paul told us that we were going to be raptured before the day of the Lord, so we missed the rapture. Uh, what's going on? He says, no, 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 let no one in any way deceive you, verse 3. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first, unless that covenant is made by Antichrist with Israel, and Israel departs from any worship whatsoever of anybody other than the Antichrist. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That happens at the beginning of that seven-year period. So the, the rapture hasn't happened yet. These things, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet because these things have to happen in the day of the Lord. And since those things haven't happened, then the rapture hasn't happened either. But for our purposes this morning, verse 4, this man opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God 
or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God himself. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's not just going to be a political world leader. He's going to be a man who says, I will receive your worship as God himself. Verse 6, you know what restrains him now. In his time, he will be revealed. So what restrains him now, I believe, is the church and the work of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. John says that in John, 1 John chapter 4 as well, that the work of the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. But he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. That, I believe that's the rapture of the church. The church is gone, taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, which makes sense because the day of the Lord begins right after the rapture of the church. And the day of the Lord begins with the Antichrist signing that peace treaty with Israel. So it makes perfect sense. But the Lord will ultimately slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity, verse 9, of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders. That's the fatal wound that looks like he died, but he's been raised from the dead. It's a sign. It's a false wonder. So turn back to Revelation chapter 13. Paul says we're going to see a man who's going to be showing these false wonders. And here in Revelation 13, we have a beast who looks like he's been slain, but his fatal wound is healed. What I want you to notice here is that the devil cannot come up with anything original. He can't. The Antichrist can't. The devil can't. God has ownership and copyright on every awesome thing in the world. And the devil just has to go, well, we lost that. So let's try and duplicate it. Let's try and imitate it. Let's try and reflect it in some way. This is so powerfully illustrated in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. You remember the two demons, one older demon, one younger demon? They're working together. They're trying to, the older demon's trying to teach the younger demon how to tempt, how to work in the world to bring people away from Christ. They talk about this beautiful chapter on counterfeit pleasure. And Screwtape says to Wormwood, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. This is a demon talking. When we're, when we're talking about any pleasure in a healthy, normal, and satisfying form, that's the enemy's territory. That's God's territory. God owns satisfaction. God owns pleasure. Do you want to be the happiest person you can possibly be? Follow Jesus. And we're not talking prosperity happiness because you're probably going to be killed for following him. We're talking about deeper satisfaction than health, money, wealth, all those different things. He goes on. I know we've won many a soul through pleasure, but all the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. Yet all of our research has not enabled us to produce even one. All we can do is to encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced and indulge them in ways which he has forbidden. Did you hear that? That's the only ploy that the devil has. Take God's pleasures and pervert them. Live them out in a different way. But it's all from God's pleasures, God-designed pleasures. We always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is at least natural, least mindful of its ma maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Listen to that. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure 
is the formula. It's much more certain, and it's a better style. Brothers and sisters, you hear, that's, that's the temptation of the devil. He says, I have a happiness to offer you. It's less than what God can offer you, but it's still happiness. It's easier, it's cheaper, and in the end, it brings death. The Antichrist has nothing to offer you that is genuinely satisfying. He only has imitation joys, just like the devil only has imitation pleasures. But back in Revelation verse 3 of chapter 13, the whole earth is amazed. They follow after the beast. They worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. So they're worshiping the beast, but as they worship the beast, they worship the dragon. This is Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians. Remember when he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols? He says, that doesn't matter. You can do that because an idol is not a thing. But if you're worshiping the idol, that's a bad thing because you're actually not just worshiping the piece of wood or the image. You're worshiping the devil behind the image. That's what's happening here. The people of the earth are just worshiping the Antichrist. But in doing so, they're worshiping the devil who's empowering the Antichrist. And they say, who is like the beast? Who's able to wage war with him? Who's able to wage war with him? It's possible that the battle that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, also described in Daniel chapter 11, has already taken place, and such that the Antichrist has just defeated everybody. And so everybody's praising him, saying, no one can beat you. You're a military hero. You're a leader. No one can beat you. Could be that. Either way, he is such a military power that the whole world is saying, who is like him? And even in this, this is their song. They're praising the Antichrist, and they say, who is like the beast? Even that's an imitation song. Who is like the beast is a play on words to who is like our God. The word Michael, the name Michael is who is like God. The, the mick is, is who is like, and, and El is Yahweh or God or Elohim. Who is like our God? So to, to say who is like the beast is saying mick beast, if you will. It sounds like a terrible food from McDonald's. But this is the mick beast, right? This, this is worship of the, the Antichrist over and above the worship of Yahweh. So even in the praise that they offer this man, it's all imitation. There's no original thought in Satan's mind. The goal of this first beast, we're going to meet a, a second one coming up, but the goal of the first beast is to seize the adoration, the attention, and the allegiance that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Just a question for your hearts this morning. The beast receives the allegiance of the world, but not the commendation of heaven. Which do you want? Would you rather have the entire world in the palm of your hand and God against you? Or God behind you in your corner, encouraging you and commending you for what you're doing and have the entire world against you? Brothers and sisters, we're coming to a place where that's the choice we're going to have to make. We have to make it intellectually now. We're going to be in a place soon where we're going to have to make that in reality, functionally. Who do you want on your side? Finally, number three, the third aspect of what the Antichrist is. He's not independent. He's not original. And finally, and very quickly, and very obviously, he's not sovereign. He's not sovereign. Instead, he operates according to the constraints of God's providence. He's not sovereign. He operates according to the constraints of God's providence. This is verses 5 and 6. There was given to him, that's that divine passive that we've seen over and over and over again in Revelation. God allows this to happen. He can't do this on his own. So even in the sin that he's committing, that couldn't be possible without God's ordaining it and allowing it. He gets a, a mouth that speaks arrogant words and blasphemies, just like 2 Thessalonians 2 said. Just like Daniel 7 and 11 said. 
He's given authority to act for 42 months. That's time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. He's given authority. He's given. He can't get this, even though he's won it in the world's understanding of what he just did in waging war and subduing all of these nations, even though he just won it. It was given to him. God's up in heaven saying, like Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. You can't do anything apart from God allowing it. And yet this man opens his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name, the covenant name of Yahweh. That just absolutely makes sense because he's going after Israel. He wants to destroy Israel. And so he's saying, your covenant-keeping God's not keeping his covenant because I'm killing you all. And then, very interesting, he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. Could refer to the believers that he's killing, saying, you have hope that you're going to go to heaven? That's not true. There is no heaven. Could be he's saying that. Maybe he's talking about the rapture. Maybe he's saying, hey, all those believers that you think left, that actually didn't happen. And he's blaspheming the hope that we have in the rapture. We don't know exactly who it's referring to, but we know that God is the one who's sovereignly allowing all of these things. Notice he says, John writes that he's blaspheming those who dwell in heaven, just like our word from Psalm 91, those who dwell in the shadows of the Almighty. And they're safely home. He can't touch them. Try as he might. So we've met this beast, which corresponds exactly with Daniel chapter 7. Why do we need this? Number one, just in conclusion very quickly, number one, this is encouraging to believers in the tribulation. This is encouragement to believers in the tribulation. Believers in the tribulation are going to read these words and say, just like we are with Daniel's book, with the book of Daniel, we read it and we go, that's exactly what happened. How amazing is this book? Believers in the tribulation are going to read this book and they're going to say, oh, this is exactly what's happening. And they're going to teach others and they're going to bring others to know and love and serve God. Number two, it's encouraging to us now. It's not just encouraging to them then, it's encouraging to us now because it's reminding us, just like the whole book of Daniel is saying, in the midst of exile, I have a plan, I have a purpose, I know how it's going to turn out, you don't have to be afraid. That's what God is saying to you and to me this morning. God is saying to you and to me right now, through this narrative of the beast and his work, I know what's going to happen, I have a plan for you, and you don't have to worry. It's like when you tape a baseball game, which I don't know why you would tape a baseball game. Uh, you probably tape a football game, right? So you're taping a football game because it's much more high energy, and you're watching the football game that you've already pre-recorded. Probably nobody tapes anything anymore because you've got TiVo, or even that's out of style. I don't know. I don't know technology. So you pre-record some sporting event, and you know the outcome of that sporting event. You get an update on your phone that tells you the final score of the game, and you go back and you rewatch it with somebody who hasn't seen the final score. And they're freaking out in the middle of it going, I don't know if my team's going to win. And you have zero sweat on your brow because you know exactly how it turns out. That's the point of revelation. That's why it's encouraging for you and for me right now today because God is saying, I know exactly how it turns out. You know exactly how it turns out. It's going to get harder, yes, but you know that. Don't worry. And after it's hard for a little while, you're going to have paradise forever. So don't worry. Finally, number three, there's a warning here. There's a warning here. It's encouraging to them then, it's encouraging to us now, and it's a warning for everyone who hears. Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 says, the spirit of the Antichrist is working even now, even though the Antichrist himself hasn't come. We read this last week. There's many Antichrists, little a. There's one coming, big A, Antichrist. But the spirit of that man is already working now. And you know him. 
is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So my question is, are you following the spirit of the Antichrist? Or are you following the spirit of the one who's going to destroy the Antichrist? Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning in your word. What a beautiful, beautiful privilege to study, to read, to dive deeply, to think deeply. And once we get to the end of talking about the Antichrist, to have a smile on our faces, to know that you're sovereign and in in control. You are our sovereign hope. You are our solid rock. You are the only confidence and assurance we have. And so we rest in you this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.